All right, there's a few, a few words that I want to throw out to you, and I want you to tell me what the, the common theme is in these words. MBA player, farmer, pastor, school teacher, engineer. Occupations, all right? So these are job titles. Um, but in, in addition to that, these are things that I have felt called to at some point in my life, okay? So starting at a young age, I wanted to be an NBA basketball player. That didn't work out as I had hoped, okay? Um, I grew up on a farm, and so I wanted to be a farmer like my grandpa really at one point in my life. Um, I currently serve as a pastor in middle school. When I went on a missions trip, I felt called maybe for the first time to ministry, um, my parents are both educators, they're both school teachers, and so I grew up around school systems and students and classrooms, so at one point in my life I thought I wanted to be an educator. Um, I wanted to be an engineer at one point, even though I don't really like math, but I like the math of more money making in that career field. Um, we're called to a lot of different things in life. You're called to something that's different than I'm called to. You know, today I'm a pastor, um, I'm, a, I'm a husband. I'm a father of four, and so we're all called to different things and to different careers and to different occupations. And so the question I just want you to consider as we get going is this, what were you created to do? Like, how has God wired you? What are the things that you're passionate about? What talents do you have? What career are you in? Maybe you've heard it said that if you love your job, you'll never work a day in your life. Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've said that, right? But there's the idea that there's something that we are wired to do, that God has gifted us to do. Or maybe you've had a conversation with someone, and you've asked them, hey, how was your week, or how are you doing? And they'd say something along these lines, just living the dream, right? I mean, it's so good. Like, I'm doing exactly what I wanted to do. And you're like, really? Is this the dream? All right. But there are those things in all of our lives that we were created to do that we're called to do. But I want to argue this this morning as we look at this passage and we look at the life of David. It's not so much what you do, it's how you do it. You see, we're called to all different spheres of influence in our lives. I'm a pastor. Your occupation is different than mine. Your family network is different than mine. The area that you live in is different than mine. But I think there's the writing theme, the overriding theme that that goes through all of our lives Here's our main point this morning. You and I were created to worship Jesus. That's it. So it's not so much what you do, it's how you do it. Where God has called you is the arena that you get to do just that. Worship Jesus in every arena, every aspect of your life. You were created to worship Jesus. I want to read for you a a verse, Jesus speaking here in John chapter 4, verse 23. It says, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. As we look at the life of David, you've been in this series for a number of weeks now. David is is described in God's word as a man who is after God's own heart. You've looked at David as shepherd, musician, as a lion and a giant killer, son-in-law, friend, So David, like us, wears a lot of different hats throughout the course of his life. But I think what you'll see today is that more than anything else, David was a worshiper. David loved his Lord. 
and he sought to worship him with his life. So we're going to talk about true worship today. I want to give us a few principles when it comes to true worship as we look at the life of David. Here's the first one. First principle of true worship. God's presence is the present. Now you see kind of what's going on there in that point? The presence of God, his, the relationship that we can have with Jesus, that's the gift in our lives. So many times we follow Jesus for all of the byproduct things that we think he will add to our life. But as we look at the life of David, he is so passionate about the presence of God. And he, and he views that as the present, as the gift, as the ultimate grace that he gets to have relationship with the creator God of the universe. God's presence is the present. We see this in verses 1 through 5 if you want to follow along. It says, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel... 30,000, all right, so ton of people, warriors, mighty men, 30,000 of them. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God. We'll talk about that in a moment. Which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, not Ohio, Ahio, the sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Now, here's the verse I really want us to focus in on. It says, And David and all of the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. All right? He is so excited about the presence of his God. And how do I know this? Because as we talk about the ark of God, we need to understand what this is all about. In the Old Testament, before there was a temple that was built by King Solomon, which was David's son, before there was a temple and a brick and mortar place of worship, they worshiped in the tabernacle. And part of the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant, which held the Ten Commandments and some other holy things that honored their heritage. And it was the place that the presence of God resided during the Old Testament. And so the Ark of God now in David's day is a symbol of the presence of God. It's been captured by the Philistines, their enemies. And so he's making it his mission to go and get this Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God. So he gathers his men, 30,000 of them go to um, the Philistines and they recapture the Ark of God to bring it back to the city of David, to Jerusalem, the center of worship of, of God. And so David here is passionate about the presence of God being in Israel through this Ark of the Covenant. There's one important thing that I don't want you to miss here. It's in verse 3. It says when they capture the Ark, when they get the Ark back, they put it on a new cart. It's pulled by oxen, and it says it's a new cart, so they went through the hassle of making sure that it was ritually clean. You're like, this sounds great, like they're doing what they should be doing. But actually, there's a problem. This wasn't how God intended the Ark of the Covenant to be carried. If you go back into the law, what you'll see is that the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, was actually supposed to be carried on poles, between Levites, men were supposed to carry the Ark of the Covenant as they moved from place to place. But they've got a new cart. 
They've got a team of oxen. Remember this point because as we go through this story, this is going to be important for us understanding what's going to happen here in a few moments. All right, But I just want to make sure you see that. And then down in verse 5, kind of the main part of this first section, it says, David and all the house of Israel, they're celebrating. Get the impression here that there is this sense of joy. There's excitement. There's a celebration happening because the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, has been recaptured. It's been brought back. It's on its way back to the city of Jerusalem, the city of David. And so David and all of his men, they are cheering, they are celebrating, they are excited. Now this is wedding season, right? How many of you have been to a wedding so far this year? Anybody? How many of you are going to a wedding at some point this summer? Okay, lots of weddings happen in the summer. We actually just got back from a wedding over the weekend in Michigan. Um, it was Friday night. We stayed all night and we drove back yesterday. It was a great time, right? It's a little bit more difficult when you have four kids under six, all right? But it's still fun, all right? My wife's like, it is? <laughs> right? But weddings are a time that we culturally and even as a church, we pause. Our lives are busy. There's a lot going on. But we say, you know what? We're putting all that aside because we want to go through whatever it takes to be at that wedding, to be at that reception, so that we can celebrate with our family, with our friends, with this new couple that are becoming one in marriage. Weddings are a time of celebration. It's something where we gather to celebrate. And that's the impression. This is what's going on. David and all of the house of Israel, they're celebrating And how are they celebrating? It says here that they're celebrating before the Lord. They're not just celebrating. They're not just making random noise. They're celebrating before the the Lord. Um, His presence. The relationship that they have with God. They are worshiping. They are celebrating before him. It says that they celebrate with music. List off a number of things that they use to do so. I love this because throughout scripture, music plays an important part in the worship of God's people. That's why on a Sunday morning, if you come here or you go to a number of other churches in the area, you're going to hear music being played with instruments. It's biblical. Throughout scripture, the celebration of God's people involves music. So simply put, the Ark of the Covenant, it's a symbol of God's presence in Israel David is saying, this is so vitally important. It doesn't matter how much political power we have as a nation. It doesn't matter how much success we have with our militaries. I want the presence of God to be in my city. So here's my application for you under this first point. I want to challenge you this week. Take time each day to celebrate God's presence in your life. Because if you're like me... When we start thanking the Lord, many times it's what he's done for us. It's the things that he's given to us. We're counting our blessings and all of those things are fine and good. But when was the last time we simply stopped and praised God for his presence in our lives? Just that he is with us. That he's promised to never leave us or forsake us. That God is present in our lives. It's an incredible miracle that we often take for granted. How is God present in your life today? So the first principle of true worship is we recognize that God's presence is the present. Here's the second thing. We stand in awe of God. We stand in awe of God. We see this now in verses 6 through 11. Again, if you want to follow along. 
says verse 6, And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put, on, put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the ox stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. All right, we read here kind of an odd story. And upon first reading, you're like, what is going on here? Like, they have, they have recovered the ark. They're transporting it back. It seems as if they're doing what God wants them to do. This poor man named Uzzah, you know, goes to catch the ark and keep it from falling off the cart when the ox start to stumble. And God takes him out. And you're like, this is, this is kind of an odd passage of scripture. And so the question that naturally arises in our mind when we read this passage is, is God unjust? Is he unfair in his treatment of Uzzah? Um, was, he, was he right in judging him and pouring out his wrath on this day? And again, there's a, there's a, there's a lot that's going on here, but I want to focus us in on two things. Right, because my answer is that God was not unjust in his wrath. God was not unfair in his judgment this day. And again, part of that goes back to what we talked about earlier. The Israelites are not transporting the ark of God as instructed. God had laid out specific guidelines for how to move the ark of the covenant. Why is it such a big deal? Because this is one of the holy things of Israel. And if you remember back in the Old Testament, Moses, to even have a conversation with God, had to put a veil over his face, right? There were only certain times when the people of Israel could go in and, and worship God, and it was always with a covering and a veil in front because of the presence of God, the miraculous power of God. We stand in awe of that. And so there's the idea here that they're not listening to what God said. They've put it on a new cart. They've made it ritually clean. They've done all these good things, but they haven't listened to the Lord. They haven't obeyed his commandment. There's also another violation going on here. To simply touch the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, was a violation of God's law. In Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, God says this, They must not touch the holy things, lest they die. Very clear, very pointed. And so the, the principle that I believe arises out of this text is that when we come to the word of God, when we come to the law of God, when we come to scripture, so many times we take it lightly. Oh, God didn't really mean that, right? I know he told me to carry it one way and he told me never to touch it, but does he really mean that? And so we go to God's word and we, and we treat it lightly and we forget the truth that God is holy and that we as God's people are called to live according to his word and not our word. That his standard is what matters, not our standard. That his standard of holiness and purity 
And what it means to be righteous is what matters, not so much our interpretation or how we want to change that. I heard once when I was in college this principle, you do what's right because it's right. You do what's right in life because it's the right thing to do. Now in college, let me give you an example. I knew it was right to do my laundry. I didn't do it right, okay? Um, another example, I, I didn't like to do laundry, and so towels would be used for week after week after week when I was in college. All right, you can imagine, like, you go to wash your face and your towel's not real clean. It's kind of musty, right? It's kind of got a stench to it, but I'm like, nah, it's okay. Not a big deal. It'll, it'll kind of breeze out as I go to class. Or I knew it was right to wash the sheets on my bed, right? My mom had told me that, but, you know, once a semester was about all I could muster, right? One time, right? And so fast forward a couple years, I'm in my junior year. I'm starting to date now my wife, Lydia. We're, we're dating at this point. Her name's Lydia Miller. And she would tell you now that when she would give me a hug, that there was kind of a musty smell about my face. <laughs> and and, and sh- she didn't say anything, obviously, because we're early in our dating relationship, and she's not going to breach that yet. And, and I was clueless to it because I kind of got used to my own smell. All right? I wasn't doing what was right. I was kind of going around, you know, yeah, I could probably go another couple weeks with that towel. I don't want to do laundry yet. My sheets are still okay. But it was so clear to everyone around me, right? that I wasn't living as I should be living. We do what's right because it's right. God has given what is right in this passage. You transport it this way. You don't touch it. And they're not following God's righteous laws. David then, in verses 8 and 9, he gets angry. He's afraid. And what he does is he allows his anger toward God and his fear now of God to derail him from his mission. So he went... To the Philistines, get the ark of God, bring it back to Jerusalem. This whole incident happens, and now he's like, I can't even handle this thing. What what am I going to do? This is going to take me out too. And so he drops it off at Obed-Edom's house for three months. He leaves it, he moves on, and he says, you know what? This is just too much for me to handle. But the amazing thing about this passage is it says, The Lord blesses Obed-Edom and all of his household. I read this week in one commentary that the presence of the Lord brings much blessing to the household where the Lord is honored. God is blessing the house of Obed-Edom because God's presence is there in the ark of God. I think what we see here, again, by application, is there is an importance of reverence in our worship. That fear of the Lord is something that should be in our worship today. And so I challenge you to stand in awe of God. And not only in here when we worship on Sunday mornings, but that we would stand in awe of God out there as well. That when you go through the doors of this school, this church, and you go back into your everyday lives, that the awe of God, a reverence of God, a healthy fear of God would be all over your life. And when we gather on Sundays and we come together as a congregation, that we would approach the throne of God with a sense of healthy fear and reverence because God is still powerful. God is still in control of the entire universe. And we get to worship him. We get to glorify his name. We stand in awe 
of God. Here's the third principle as we look at this passage. Number three, worship is joyful, sacrificial, and missional. Worship is joyful, sacrificial, and missional. Look at verse 12. It says this, And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to it, because the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Right? He's not a dumb guy. Right? He's like, all right, I'm seeing blessing happening over here. The house of Obed-Edom, I dropped off the Ark of the Covenant. Something's going on over there. Now I need to go back and get it. Okay, so David, he's wising up to his heir. He goes back and now he's going to retrieve what he has left off. Verse 13. And when those who bore the Ark of the Lord had gone six steps. Now, notice, I think they've learned their lesson here. Right? They remember what happened to Uzzah. Now, there's no ox, there's no cart. It says, those that bore the ark of God, when they had gone six steps, right? One, two, three, four, five, six. They stopped and they sacrificed and they worshiped and they offered fattened animals, right? So they're like, we're not going to fall. The ark isn't falling. Every six steps, we're going to stop. We're carrying this on our back and we're going to make sure that this thing gets safely to the city of David, right? So they're learning their lesson. This is a good thing. Verse 14, and David danced before the Lord with all of his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, this is one of David's wives, looks out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his own house. Worship is to be joyful, sacrificial, and missional. Before we talk about appropriate and right expressions of worship, because we see a lot of them right here in this text, I want to talk about David's wife and how she despised him in her heart for David's expression of worship right she sees she's looking out the window David and the men are coming back into the city there's dancing and leaping and singing and shouting and there's all this stuff going on and Michael looks out of her window and she has hatred in her heart for King David her husband before we get into all the different expressions of worship, I just want us to pause and think about this. She's more concerned with what people will think about him than his worship. She's quicker to complain about how she thinks worship should be done than to confess the Lord as her Savior and to worship him herself. Instead of worshiping her God, she's whining, she's complaining, she's being critical. 
I think as I read this, I think of so many church worship wars that have happened over the centuries of God's church. So many of the arguments and the fights and the quarrels that happen within the body of Christ are around what happens on a worship stage and what kind of instruments are used and how loud is the music and what do the stage lights look like. And there's all these peripheral preference-oriented things that begin to cloud our worship of God because we're more focused on the preferences than we are on praising the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let's not be guilty of what Michael does here, being quick to be critical or to complain when what we ought to be doing is worshiping. Let's talk about David's expressions of worship. And before we do that, I just want to give us this idea, this principle here. Pure expressions come from pure hearts. So it doesn't matter what expression of worship you use, whether it's raising your hands or it's clapping or it's jumping and leaping and dancing or singing aloud so that all can hear. If it doesn't come from a pure heart, it doesn't matter, right? Because what God cares about most is what's in our hearts and our own personal relationship with him. And so let's not get all kind of weighed down by all the uh, expressions and what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. What matters most is our own hearts before God. But I do believe we see some amazing expressions of worship here on the part of King David that can help us and guide us in our own worship. There's a number that come under the category of joy. Joy. It says in verse 12, if you want to look back there for just a moment, it says, and it was told the king, fast forward, uh, down to the end of it. He's coming back into the city of David and it says he does so with rejoicing. Again, the idea that the blessing of God brings joy in our lives. The presence of God, the blessing of God should bring joy to our hearts. And he expresses that then. David expresses that joy with dancing before the Lord with all of his might. It's crazy, I know. He's dancing before the Lord with all of his might, verse 14. Verse 16 says that he's leaping and dancing before the Lord. Now, the word here for dancing is the only time in Scripture that this word is used. Right, it's a word that means a whirling dance. Right, it's, it's an excited, celebratory, jumping, dancing. It's, he is so excited about what God has done and what God will do in his city and in his kingdom. He is dancing before the Lord. Now, I'm a white guy. Right? I grew up on a farm. And so the only dancing that I'm even remotely good at, is in the form of a square, a line, and most times to a song like Boot, Scoot, and Boogie, okay? (laughs) Ask my wife. I'm not a good dancer, okay? I'm just not. And I admit that, okay? But when it comes to the worship of God, again, this is not saying you must always do this in your worship services. But it's appropriate. When we have experienced the grace and the goodness of God, the incredible blessing of God in our lives, that when we're singing and when we're, we're praising God, whether that's corporately here at church or it's individually with our families and our neighborhoods and our homes, there's appropriateness for the expression of dancing and jumping and leaping because of all that God has done. I mean, think about it. How many things do we jump and leap and dance about? We go to a sporting event, right? Get on your feet. Let's cheer the team on. Right? You go to a wedding. There's dancing. There's celebration. We, as the body of Christ, have so much more to be thankful for. We have so much more to celebrate. 
It is appropriate to express our joy through dancing. In Psalm chapter 30, verse 11, just a couple of verses to help round out this point. You have turned me, my life, from mourning into dancing. Psalm 149, verse 3, let them praise his name with dancing. Psalm 150, verse 4, praise him with the tambourine and dance. We also see here another expression of joy is shouting, verse 15. That they're shouting. There's the sound of the horn, which was a signal of victory, um, that there's been a a war that is won. They have captured the Ark of the Covenant, and it's being brought back in, and they're screaming and shouting and cheering, and horns are being played. There is a sense of joy here on the part of David's expression of worship. We also see an expression of sacrifice here. There's giving. And so right before I came up here to preach, and across church after church in our area and around the country, we have opportunity to give in an offering. Offering is an opportunity to worship with the finances and the resources that God has given to us. And so when we come on a Sunday morning, it's, it's not just this thing that we have to do or that we feel like is this ball and chain that we just kind of get through. When we give to the Lord's work and we give of our best and our first fruits, not the scraps and what we have left over, God is blessed through that. And God will use those funds to further his kingdom and to push the gospel into our communities and around the world because of your faithful giving. Now, giving is not just, sacrifice is not just monetary, right? It's our energy. It's the talents that God has given us. It's all of us giving what God has entrusted to us back to him for the glory of God. It says in verse 13 here that David sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. In verse 17, he offered burnt offerings and peace offerings to the Lord. In verses 18 and 19, it says that he blessed the people and he distributed, he gave, he was generous among all the people. Sacrifice is a powerful form of worship. Our generosity, our giving, our lending to someone in need, our going to someone's house and helping them with the yard work or things around the house, all of these are expressions of worship that we as the body of Christ should be a part of. And lastly, missional. Worship is missional. Worship is a lifestyle. It's just a small little detail, but I love how this is included in God's word. It says in verse 19 that all the people departed and went to their own house. Right? God's will for the church is not that we just gather in holy huddles and do all the churchy things here and have no impact out there. He's calling us to depart. And so when we end this service here in a little bit, we're all going to leave. We're going to get in our cars. We're going to go to our homes and our workplaces and our schools and wherever God has called us to. I believe God is calling us. He's created you to take worship with you wherever you go. That all of life is an opportunity to worship him. We see that here in our text. So here's my application under this, this third point. Challenge for us as we go into this week. I would challenge you to go and be the church. Be the church, the body of Christ, the light of Christ in a dark world, the visible representation of Jesus to the people that God has called you to. Go and be the church. And I'll say it this way. There is so much joy in our coming on Sunday mornings. 
Like we get to gather every single week, myself at Maranatha Bible Church, you guys here at Community Bible Church. There is joy when brothers and sisters in Christ come together to worship God, to read his word, to offer to God, to sacrifice. When we come together, there's so much joy, right? I'm not even talking about the donuts and the coffee. Like there's joy there too. But we come and there's joy here when we gather on Sunday mornings. But what? There's power when we leave this building. When the body of Christ is mobilized and they go into neighborhoods and communities and people see your love for Jesus and your worship for God, you can make an impact and God wants to use you for his glory. I challenge you to live worshipful lives in your homes, your workplaces, your schools, and your neighborhoods this week. What might that look like for you? What needs to change in your life? What needs to be added to your life so that you can do just that? Worship is joyful, sacrificial, and missional. Here's the last point. We worship before the Lord. Worship before the Lord. Look at verse 20. It says this, And David returned to bless his household. So he's left the congregation. The worship as a congregation or community has ceased. And now he's going back to his household to bless his house. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, again, his wife, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of the female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord, who chose me above your father and above all his house, to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. There's a commitment here on the part of David. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, or the word undignified than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. We see the powerful commitment of David here to worship before the Lord. But as he goes back into his household to bless his household, right, to be generous and sacrificial and worshipful with those in his household, he's not met with a, a warm welcome, a big hug and kiss and how you doing, honey? Thanks for your work. Um, come on in. I've got a nice meal prepared for you, right? His wife, Michael, doesn't greet him at the door with that kind of treatment. He's met with a sarcastic comment, right? How the king uncovered himself in front of all those people today. Can't handle that. So let's talk about this word uncovering himself. Let's be clear here. David was not naked when he was dancing in the streets, right? That was what she was accusing him of, uncovering himself, being immodest, impure, vulgar in his worship of God. But remember, verse 14 tells us that he was wearing a linen ephod. You're like, I don't know what that is. I haven't seen those in any department stores um, or even H&M lately. Um, I don't know what a linen ephod is. Let me tell you, a linen ephod is nothing more than a simple white robe, okay, that was worn by priests during David's day. And so, yes, he has taken his, his warrior attire off, his armor, his kingly attire is no longer there, but he is not naked. He is 
clothed. And he is worshiping before the Lord with freedom. He is excited about what God has done. And so this accusation of Michael doesn't reveal impurity, immodesty, or vulgarity on David's part. What it reveals is bitterness in Michael's heart. Okay? Contempt. Hatred. It shows that Saul, King Saul, who wasn't very spiritually discerning, if you know the story of the Old Testament, his daughter was very, very similar. She missed the point. She missed out on the powerful truth that this is the presence of God, the symbol of God's presence that is returning to the city of Jerusalem in the ark of God. This is a big moment. This is worth celebrating. This is worth cheering about. This is worshipful. She's missed the moment because she's what? More concerned with what people think than what God thinks. Can you imagine our worship as the body of Christ in America today if we didn't care what other people thought? If we weren't consumed with thoughts about, well, I wonder what the people next to me would think if, if I really worshiped God? or the people behind me, or as I go back into my home or into my community, if I lived out my faith in a way that was truly honoring to Jesus, what would people think? And you see, a lot of our worship comes to a screeching halt because of our fear of what other people will think if we do. I love this passage because David here at the end, he is making this bold commitment Six times throughout this one chapter, the phrase, before the Lord appears. He says, my dancing, my screaming, my singing, my worshiping, it was all done before the Lord, verse 21. And he says, I will celebrate before the Lord. I don't care what you think or what others think, I will celebrate and worship God because he is worthy of my praise. So here's the application. I think it's pretty clear. When it comes to our worship, it's not about you. And it's not about them, the people around you, or the people out there. It's all about him. It's not about us. It's not about what other people think. Worship, in its most genuine form, is when we care so much more about what God thinks than what others think. It's about him. So how are you allowing others to hinder your worship today? How are you allowing your own fears and reservations and hindrances to keep you from worshiping God, praising him for the faithful God that he is? We worship before the Lord. I've argued this morning as we look at this passage that as we look at God's word, you were created to worship God. That the one calling, while there are a lot of sub-callings in all of our lives, the one main calling for each and every one of us is that we would worship God in everything we do and everything we say. And so here in a moment, the band is going to return to the stage and we're going to have an opportunity to worship. We've got a, a few songs that we've saved because we want to create space here. We want you to have an opportunity to respond to God's word like King David did in a worshipful, God-honoring, excited, joyful way. And so as we sing these songs, here's my challenge for you and here's my prayer for you. I pray that God 
would work in your heart and that you would worship him for the God that he is. That all distractions and all things that would take your focus off of him would be removed. That if there's sin in your life that's separating you from God, because that makes it difficult for us to worship when there's unconfessed sin in our lives, that during these last few songs, you would confess those. Surrender them to him, knowing that God has promised in his word that he will forgive you. He will restore you. And he will bring you back to right relationship with him. But it starts with confession. And maybe it's been a long time since you have genuinely thanked God for his presence in your life. Praised him for the blessings that he has given you. Thought about your family and your friends and the good things. All the blessings that he has showered upon you. And all the things that, if we're honest, we don't deserve. Take time as we sing these songs to pray. And to worship God. To sing out, to raise hands, to clap, to experience the joy that God has for you because following Jesus is always worth it. And worshiping Him ought to be our life's mission. You were created to worship Jesus. I pray that that would start in your life today. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this incredible passage as we look at the life of King David, who was a worshiper who's a man after your own heart. And so God, I pray for the hearts of every individual in this room, that God, we would be uh, right in your eyes, that if there's anyone in here today that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, they haven't experienced salvation, eternal life in you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work in their hearts right now. That God, you would convict them of sin, that they would recognize their need for a savior, And God, that they would surrender their life to you for the first time and receive forgiveness and salvation and eternal life in Christ Jesus. And God, for the believer here today, I pray that they would be reminded in a very tangible, powerful way of your presence, your promises, and all the good things that you have done on their behalf. God, thank you most of all for Jesus Christ. Thank you for his cross. We pause now to say thank you, to worship you, to honor your name above all. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.